Hello and welcome to Resolution Parenting After Parting Special Edition, looking at issues in the family justice system affecting parents both during and after separation. Today we'll be looking at how the family justice system and how we as professionals working in it might better enable parents to reach constructive outcomes for their children. I'm Edward Cook, a family lawyer and mediator at Edward Cook Family Law and a me member of Resolutions National Committee and co-chair of Resolutions Training and Learning Committee. I'm also a member of Resolutions Parenting After Parting Committee and a child inclusive mediator. I'm delighted to be joined today by two people who both have a great deal of experience in helping families navigate the parenting separation pathway. Firstly, Sir James Mumby. Sir James should need no introduction to most resolution members, but for those who don't know him, Sir James was the president of the family division from 2013 until his retirement in 2018, after a long and distinguished career at the family bar and then at the bench. Since his retirement, Sir James has continued to play an active role in family justice, not least as the current chair of the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory, an organisation established by the Nuffield Foundation in 2019 to improve the lives of children and their families by putting data and evidence at the heart of the family justice system. All those who work in the family justice system share a common goal, helping children and families thrive in the future. To quote Sir James, the observatory exists to find and fill our gaps in our understanding of the family justice system, to highlight areas where change will have the biggest impact and to foster collaboration to make that change happen. Welcome, Sir James. Secondly, I'm delighted to be joined by Adele Ballantyne. Adele is a psychotherapist and counsellor from the Leader Consultancy in Shrewsbury, or Shrewsbury, <laughs> and co-chair of Resolutions Parenting After Parting Committee and chair of Res Resolutions Future Practice Group. Adele specialises in helping families navigate relationship breakdown and issues arising on separation, including co-parenting issues. She also provides training and therapeutic support for all family law professionals. I'd like to start today by talking about the family justice system as it is now. So James, in your view, how effectively is the family justice system delivering for parents and families at the moment? I'm afraid the answer is, and uh, this is no criticism of all the heroic people working in the system, uh, not very well at all. Indeed, the report, report by Mr Justice Cobb, which we're going to be talking about shortly, begins off by saying this was back in 2020, the family justice system is in crisis. It was then, uh, it is now. Is that is that how you see things as well, Adele? Absolutely, I would I would agree with that. I think there are many things that need to change in order to help traumatised families, because that's who we're working with when a, a relationship breaks down. It's, it's hugely traumatic, and the current system, I feel, adds to that trauma. And so, James, I mean, in terms of the main areas of concern for you, what are, what are those? Well, the fundamental problem is that we, the family justice system, is grotesquely under-resourced. Um, and is trying to do with inadequate resources, both financial and human, an immense amount of work with caseloads that simply cannot cope with. And do you think that's been exacerbated by the COVID crisis? COVID hasn't helped, but my own view is that um, pointing to COVID as the cause of the problem or a significant aspect of the problem is actually blinding ourselves to the truth, which is that these problems are long-seated, They've been around with us for a very long time. COVID has obviously made things worse. But um, we were in crisis before COVID was even thought of. And uh, we continue in crisis. 
And Adele, how do you how do you see this manifesting it in in the clients that you're dealing with in terms of the work you deal with day to day? It's hugely stressful. It delays parent-child relationships whilst families are waiting to attend court. And, you know, my experience, many of those families don't actually need to be within the court system. And I think for me, that is where we need to, to start. We need to look at early intervention. So we're meeting families right at the beginning of this process, of this traumatic time. And actually, rather than using court straight away which it seems that some some solicitors actually do that as soon as they reach a bump in in communications or somebody's upset or angry and wants their way if you like as a parent often court is is something that is is talked about straight away and in fact what we need to be doing is early intervention work so we can help families to understand that court for the majority of families is not the place they need to be it makes it worse for them later and what in your experience is the impact on the children in these situations it's huge what are we doing to our children what i'm seeing across the board with with children young adults couples who are in their 20s and 30s forming relationships now what i'm seeing are the after effects of their parental breakup their own parents breakup where there has been times where they haven't had a a father figure or a mother figure in their lives where there's been animosity i've only just finished with working with a family four children they're all grown up they've all got children And the reason they came to see me was because one of the grandchildren said, Granny doesn't like Grandad, does she? At six, they're picking up. And their parents divorced 17 years ago. That's why we need to do this right. So the ripples of badly handled divorce can be very long lasting and very widespread. Generational. and, And it will continue to get worse. What are we teaching children by this process? What we're we're doing is we're we're saying that mums and dads can't make decisions together about their children without a lawyer, without a court process. What what is it teaching them about their own parents? Well, this is how dad treats mum or mum treats dad or mum treats mum, whatever the setup. It's not helping children to learn about what relationships are, what good, healthy relationships are. And that actually many problems can be negotiated if done in the right way. Let's turn now back to look at how things might be improved. The Family Solutions Group report in November 2020 put forward a raft of recommendations as to where improvements could be made to the family justice system to better support parents and families. So, James, which of these recommendations do you think are the most important and why? Well, I'm very reluctant to cherry pick, not least because that is what government will do. I mean, the single most important message which comes through that report is this is an entire package. This is a comprehensive analysis which needs to be accepted and applied. And if one cherry picks, we know what will happen. The cherry picking will, surprise, surprise, alight on the things which are the cheapest and the easiest to do, and it will not achieve what it needs to achieve. That said, and if you press me, I would say the three most important aspects of it are the very clear message that we need much better information 
out there uh, for parents and separately for their children, explaining what the problems are, explaining what the process is, and explaining how this regrettable family breakdown can actually be cured. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is we need to get uh, a lot of cases out of court altogether. We need, we need to fundamentally reappraise the process. And we need to grasp the nettle uh, that, and I think the report does this, we've got to distinguish between two classes of case. On the one hand, cases which involve welfare, safeguarding issues with children, and closely linked with that, cases which involve uh, domestic abuse. And they require a court process. The other block of cases shouldn't be in court at all. And we've got to do everything in our power to produce systems which keep them out of court. Partly that's education, partly that's the availability of information, partly, and this is a very important aspect of what the report recommends, we need uh, not really information, but we need procedures um, and the availability of support, remedies, non-judicial, non-court remedies to grapple with that. And then the third aspect of the matter is they rightly focus on uh, what needs to change in relation to those cases which should be in court. Um, and there, I suppose, the two big messages are that the children have got to have a proper voice, which they don't have at present. And secondly, there's got to be, which there isn't at present, whatever the theory may be, a proper judicial case management, proper judicial supervision. Those are the three big things. The idea of general public education, as opposed to having... Uh, web-based information, I think, is probably a chimera. It'll take far too long to provide general education. Ideally, this kind of thing ought to be on the school curriculum. It never will be. Um, it's far too controversial. It won't work. We've been educating uh, unmarried women for 40 years. There was no such thing as common-law marriage. The percentage of the population believes there is such a thing. It remains stubbornly high, and it's the same now as it was I say 40 years, 50 years ago in the 1970s. So general education is a desirable build on that. But the key thing is the provision of um, reliable information. I'm a little more hopeful, Sir James, on the point of education. I have a little plug for resolution here, but one of my colleagues of resolution, Graham Fraser, who's mm -hmm. involved in the cohabitation side, has recently um, managed to get onto the school curriculum mm -hmm. um, some lessons all about mm -hmm. cohabitation. Um, and marriage. Um, so I think there is there is some hope there. Um, but but I, I take your point that it's going to be a time. You're, you're pressing me to yeah. on on the key things. Yeah. And I'm perhaps I was overemphasizing it, but I was expressing skepticism as to whether that is actually yeah. the best and quickest way of getting um, a big bang for your buck, as it were. Yeah. But the key, the absolutely key thing, has got to be the avail the ready availability, easy accessible on the web, of information, guidance, explanations. Um, both for parents and for children. And we've been talking about this for years. I mean, I was talking about this on committees when I was present back in 2013, 2014. Nothing happened then. Why did it not happen? Because the government isn't joined up. Is that, is that the key problem for you? Is it, is it the lack the of... The fundamental problem. Political will here. Um, well, it's, worse. It, it, it's institutional paralysis in Whitehall. I mean, which are the government departments which have responsibility for children's families? Well, there's DFE, there's MOJ, very important player because of the benefit system is DWP, 
the Home Office has a walk-on role, um, and there are others. That's the one, first problem. The second problem in, in that respect is that uh, typically none of those departments actually have a key ministerial focus on either children or families. And there have been occasions in the past, and I your attention to this, when it, it, there isn't a single, even junior minister, whose job description includes either the word children or families. I think they may be unpleasant, but it's, it, it tends to be delegated down the chain to junior ministers. And uh, th- there's no link-up. And the other aspect of the problem is that uh, because it's junior ministers, because of the amazing turnover we've seen in the last decade of both secretaries of state and junior ministers, nobody is in the job long enough to get any kind of feel for it. And there is simply no way of getting this machinery to engage. And I, was it the Public Accounts Committee produced a damning report, was it last week, about the inadequacy of services for uh, mentally ill, uh, disturbed teenagers? One of the big points they were making was there was no government department which has anything to do with this. And trying to get government to engage is almost impossible. So you feel um, you felt that family justice community needs to be shouting louder about this and about this problem? Yes. Yeah. We, we need to have somebody. An idea needs to be a secretary of state, mm. not some here today, gone tomorrow junior minister who just sees this as the first step, what they hope is going to be a long ministerial career. Mm. You've got to have somebody out there who is a secretary of state, has as part of the job title uh, responsibility for children and families. It does seem extraordinary in a civilised society. We don't have that. You know, we don't have a... It, the family is comes in all sorts of different forms, but in a, in a society like ours, we should have a minister responsible for families, shouldn't we, yeah. Adele? I mean, what's your, what's yeah. your view on that? I, I, I agree. And it's really lovely hearing you speak, Sir James, because you speak my mantra, you know, I think information, education, training and support should underpin all of this right at the beginning, right at the beginning. And what we're talking about is a change of narrative. Uh, so as well as as educating everybody out there as, as to what needs to happen, we, we need to be switching the story to go from battle language mm. to calmness and kindness and caring, because really for a majority of of families breaking down, well, not families particularly, but couples breaking down in their relationship. You know, that's the only thing that changes. When people divorce, when people separate, it's the end of a couple relationship. It's not the end of a family because for those children, they're the only parents they're they're really going to know that's mum and dad. Other adults may come into their lives as their parents move on and settle down perhaps in, in other relationships and that will enrich their lives or can enrich their lives but essentially I I work really hard to change language with the clients that I use because I know how I speak to that couple the first time I speak to them is going to make a difference in how they view what comes next and I suppose the reason I became involved with resolution was that I noticed in my work that I was spending as much time helping couples separate as I was growing new relationships together 
And what would happen is I'd spend a lot of time working with the couple. They'd come to the decision, it's over, we're going to separate. So then I'd start working with them about what comes next. So this is your next chapter. You're going to become co-parents. You're going to live in two homes and your children are going to go between those two homes and you will still need to make decisions for them. So that work was crucial. And they'd go away and see their separate lawyers come back six months later and not even be speaking to each other and calling each other Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so or the party when they'd been having wonderful conversations, sad conversations, difficult conversations together. But but nevertheless, they were still speaking. So don't say it's, it's, it's more than just the language. The language is part of it. But there's a systemic issue here in terms of the way that the adversarial system works. Yes, definitely. Well, I agree. I mean, I think the lack, there's a big, big problem, um, which we've got to solve if we're ever going to get a proper set of online resources. We've got to have proper language, the kind of language ordinary speak, people speak. And by that, I don't mean the kind of language lawyers think ordinary people speak, because lawyers, even when they speak as they think ordinary people speak, can't speak proper ordinary English. And I think there's a big, big problem there. There's a huge language problem. And it's well known. I mean, it's astonishing, in a sense, if you're middle class and educated and the rest of them, to discover how many parents, how many families come out of court not actually understanding what the decision has been. And that's not a criticism of them. It's a damning indictment of the system. And I think the other aspect of the system is that it polarizes things. It requires you to put things down on paper. And no doubt, and I'm not for a moment criticising the lawyers involved in this, um, no doubt uh, the client may get the impression that the lawyer is saying, well, is that, the, is that the most you can say? Well, you want a bit more, and then a bit more comes out, and then it's on paper, and then it has to be answered by the other side, and the other side comes back with its menu of complaints, and then that generates another menu of complaints. And then all the time while this is going on, time is lapsing, the process is so slow, Weeks and months go by. So by the time you exit back to court, there's been more stuff in the, in, the, in the meantime, more things you can complain about. And you then get to a situation where something which was manageable uh, at the outset has become unmanageable six months, nine months down the line because uh, the language is unhelpful, the process polarizes things, the process endlessly requires more and more evidence, more and more stuff. You then end up something which is unmanageable and far too often is insoluble. I mean, these intractable cases are a scandal. Some of them, a small minority, are intractable because of behavior on the part of one or other parent. A lot of them become intractable because the process itself creates that. And it perpetuates the... It perpetuates it. And this is not something new. I mean, judges were complaining about this 20 years ago. I mean, it so happened that back in the very early just after the millennium, a number of judges, and I was one of them, started talking about this. And the late lamented Nick Wall was one, and Giant Bracefall was another. And there were a number of judgments, 2000, 2001, 2002. And I then exploded in a judgment, which was, um, I always remember the date, quite inadvertently, it was published on the 1st of April, 2004, where I had a tremendous explosion about the, 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 the problems of the system. And it was well recognized that there were problems. And the system was generating problems. The system was not solving problems. The system was failing parents. But here we are, best part, 20 years later. Are we doing things better? Well, no doubt in some places we're doing things better. But there's 
there hasn't been the sea change in attitude, there hasn't been the sea change in practice, which there should have been. But the Family Solution Group report does at least seem to have raised awareness and made people more conscious of, of, of the deep nature problems we have here, particularly you know, around language, for example. There's a um, family language group who I believe are doing fantastic work in this area, aren't they, Adele? Yes, they, they are. And I think it is much needed. If we just take that word that many of the lawyers that I work with use all of the time, contact. They're having contact with their child. Well, actually, they're not having contact with their child. A parent is having family time or a child is having time with a mum or a dad. It's dehumanises you know, what is meant to be a family. I understand that, but I have some sympathy. I mean, I'm sure the change, right, just as the previous change when we got rid of access, not about contact, but mm-hmm. when we got rid of uh, residence in common, we were unable to come up with a simple, snappy word or phrase. And there's some long certification in, in the statute, which is simply too boring and too time-wasting to, 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 to say and it's a big defect. And they say we should have had some some concept, a more a shorter, more memorable phrase, which one could use. But I, mean, I quite take your point. And of course, custody went in nineteen ninety one. still when use the it. children came when children came in force. Parents and lawyers and companies yeah. still use it. Here yeah. we are, thirty years later. I mean, we, we've often joked on the Parenting After Barting Committee about, you know, joke and serious about it, actually, about that. in terms of getting into, into the education system and getting into society, how good it would be for EastEnders or Coronation Street to run a story, you know, which is seen by 8 million people every night, positively promoting better values in terms of how families separate. I mean, that that, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Did that? It would. Uh, and it, it reaches many people quite quickly because mm. obviously the, many people watch those. And I use soaps quite a lot in my work to try and explain how things can be different when when you're changing family shape. And it's just so important. And I think it, with, with the court process, so it, when I'm referred clients from the court, usually on the day day they're in court, actually, I, I get all, all this information sent to me. And I, I say to people, don't please don't send me the bundle. I don't want to read what other people think. What I want to do is get to know this family. And I want to see what's going mm. on. Because how many people have listened to the mum's story, the dad's story, the children's story? Have they listened properly? Have they got the time to make sure that they've understood what that person means have they questioned to make sure they've understood it you know before they go and write that report how much time has a CAFCAS worker a social worker you know guardian spent with the children because I know as a family therapist I've got teenagers children I'm working with I've seen them 10 sessions are they starting to trust me maybe just a little bit with something that isn't really significant to them that they can trust me with so I know if somebody has seen a child for 10 minutes half an hour an hour for the first time and then goes and writes a report about that child for the for the judge to to try and get some context and I understand why they do that they're not going to know that child and that child will not be willing to share with them information. That and is I think one of the problems life. is that the children are very aware of that. Of course. Very conscious of that. And that is why so many children want themselves to speak to the judge. Yeah. And I think that's they correct. don't think that the professional is spending the time and trouble. 
they don't think they've been properly understood, it's all too superficial. And I'm afraid that is right. Mm -hmm. One reads in too many cases, you've actually asked the question, how long how long did you, the Catholic officer, actually spend talking to mother or father? How long did you, the guardian, spend? Sometimes the answers are shocking. Um, and sometimes with a know, parent there. 35 minutes. And it, and so it, your entire experience in this case is 35 minutes. And it'll be a one-off. I mean, there's a child in case of mediator. One of the advantages of child in case of mediation is the child can come back and see you more than mm -hmm. once. And you can see them a year or two later, and at least there's some continuity. But you, you won't see a child seeing another Kafka officer again. And it's a one-off. Or a social worker. There's, if I'm if I'm working in, in with a public um, law case, then often the first one of the first conversations we will have is, how many social workers have you had? How many professionals have you seen during mm. this time? The number is staggering, and these children are young. So how on earth? And that's one reason I think, I suspect, why they're so keen to talk to the judge. The judge is the person who matters. These endless adults they see, and they may not necessarily understand the difference. Why should they between the social worker, and that social worker, and the guardian, mm -hmm. or this or that? And this really came across actually at the national conference this year. We had the Family, Youth, Young People's Justice Board who came to talk, and we had some representatives from there, and they were explaining their experience as children in the family justice system. Mm -hmm. and they said exactly that they didn't feel they were being heard, and in desperation they want to speak to the judge very often. And they weren't being they were... listened to. They no. people going through the motions. I mean, I've, I used to go every year to their annual conference and uh, very early on, a few enlightened judges organizing conferences started inviting representatives of the young people to come along, explain their views. Absolutely. I and I will never forget there was a conference that used to be probably still as an annual conference of all the family judges on the Northern Circuit. And I went to their conference in, I think, 2014 and the big slot in the afternoon session, two o'clock, was a panel of, I think, four young people who just were going to get on the platform and uh, explain their experiences. They'd all, they'd all been through bits of the system, and they ranged in age, I know, from 12 to 13 to 19. And it's very interesting because over lunch, there was a grand swell of grumbling from judges. Why are we listening? Because what's the point of this? And um, they all came in. And the young people were very brave. And there were about 200. There was a shared ranks of 200 people there, most of whom were male, white, middle-aged, a few women, not very many. And they, most of them were pretty sort of bored and uninterested. Many of the children did their stuff. And I was up on the platform so I could watch what was going on. And it was absolutely extraordinary. The, the more it went on, the more one saw scales falling from judges' eyes. And they began to realise just what these children were saying. And they began to realize what a complete revelation it was to them. And after the session finished, when one was, I think we had coffee break, tea break, um, the tone changed completely. Over lunchtime, being, why are we wasting our time with this? And you know, this is absolutely eye-opening. I wish I'd known this years ago. This is so important. And uh, one of the messages, I remember there was a very impressive young woman, I think she was 15 at the time, 16, who'd been in very protracted private law proceedings for years and years and years. I think they went on for seven years. They'd started when she was seven and they just finished when she was 15. And her base point was for years she'd been saying she wanted to go and tell the judge what it was that she needed. Oh, don't I know? She was fobbed off. 
And eventually, this was her point, eventually she got a judge who wanted to hear her. And she went and did her piece. And that judge agreed with her. Now, it may have been pure coincidence, but her point was that she'd gone through seven years of hell, seven years not getting anywhere, uh, because the judge wasn't prepared to listen to her, wasn't prepared to talk to her and then listen to her. And then she got a judge who was prepared to listen to her, was prepared to talk to her, and the problem solved itself. So how can we embed good practice in the judiciary then from that experience in terms of, you say scales fell from the eye, their eyes, but they're... they're well, I think, I think on that front, we are a long way further forward. I mean, when I was president, I made it, I, I, I arranged some of the young people to come and talk to the mm. thing called the President's Conference, which is the annual get-together of all the senior family judges. And it had exactly the same impact. And I think the more, and the, a lot of judges started attending the Young People's Annual Conference. So I think we're a long way further forward there. But inevitably, I mean, not all judges are the same. Judges are human beings. Some are more interested than others. Some are more enthusiastic than others. And in a sense, the message is is well received by those who are receptive. Mm-hmm. It's not so well received by those who are not, don't want to be receptive. But as I think going back to what we said earlier, so James, is about ensuring that the vast majority of these cases, which don't have serious issues of domestic abuse, for example, those cases shouldn't, shouldn't end up in court in the first place. Shouldn't be in court at all. No. And I think, the, and um, an example of crime pre-proceedings work, mm. we need to cross the family justice system, we need in care cases, pre-proceedings work. Court should be seen as the last resort. If there's mm. some other way in which the right answer can be come to, then it's almost always better than the court. There's a very small number of cases where parties are so entrenched or the issues are so stark so, so that you require a judge. So what's, so what's gone wrong then? Because obviously it's 2011, it's 12 years ago when Mayams came in. Why, why has that not led to the sea change? We will hope Well, there are two problems. Mayams was a disaster. They were told beforehand it was not going to work. They said, oh, it'll work. And the people, the naysayers are absolutely right. It didn't work because, as everybody in the system knew, the prime source of referrals to mediation prior to Mayams were solicitors. And Mayams came in at the very moment when Laspo cut off the legal aid. And people said to them at the time, this is not going to work. Mediation is going to plummet, as it did. And then there was a lot of denial about this in Whitehall. And eventually Whitehall was forced to concede it wasn't working. And the one sensible thing they did was they got David Norgrove to sit chair of committee looking into the Mayans problem. What happened? He produced a report based upon extensive work, consultation, careful analysis, with, let us say, I can remember the price number, 14 recommendations. Were the 14 recommendations accepted? No. They accepted the, let us say, six cheap, easy ones. And that was never going to solve the problem. And it's staggered on ever since. And uh, it's too easy to evade the maps. And that's the other aspect of the problem. Judges are not sufficiently tough in exercising their powers uh, to throw cases out of court. Now, there are a number of aspects to this. One is that there's a general requirement in the rules, we've been there since 2010, general requirement in the rules, that at every stage of every case, the judge is to consider whether some, and it's now called non-court dispute resolution, issue, issue resolution, issue resolution yeah. should be adopted. That has always been an absolute dead letter. How many judges have ever actually applied that? Not very many, I, I feel. What happens when somebody comes to court not having gone through a mind? Well, too often the attitude from the judge, from the court, from the parties, 
is what we're here now for as a practical deal with it. And then there's a wider problem. Judges simply sit there thinking, and I think that's criticized them, but it requires quite toughness to do anything else, saying, well, our job is to decide this dispute. And however ridiculous and trivial the dispute is, it's our job to decide it. I think uh, Stephen Cobb's report referred to, in a very interesting footnote, to that great blast from Judge Wildblood in Bristol recently, who said that it was absurd that judges had to spend their time deciding whether the handover point should be at this junction or that junction on the M4. And I've been preaching it for years, and very early on in my judicial career, way back in 2002, 2003, in the days when high court judges still occasionally dealt with private law cases. Some private law case came in front of me, and I had to decide two questions. The first question was, should the weekend stay in contact, which everybody agreed, last until 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock on the Sunday. And the second question, should the handover point be, as it were, the little chef at M25 Junction 17 or the happy eater at M25 Junction 15? And I said, this is completely absurd. And there's another new fact I have a high court judge. I mean, no judge for dealing with it. Um, and there's no rational basis for dealing with it. I mean, the truth is, if one's honest, you're not acting as a judge, you're acting as a wise uncle. And, of course, the solution which I adopted, without having to give any reasons, was that you always cut it down the middle. Not quite. I, mean, I sort of said yeah, it should be 5.45. If you go, if you cut it down the middle, people say, oh, you always aim on it. I said 5.45, and it should be somewhere else. And here we are, 15 years later. Stephen Marbot, a very sensible, very humane judge, very empathetic, who understands things been steeped in family law for decades. He's having to say the same thing. And the ultimate absurdity from my my experience was sitting up and pressed some intractable private law cases put in front of me. And counsel or counsel on both sides, it was middle class family who were getting a hammer and tongs. Counsel came in with great triumph, said we there were, there were thirty points of contention. We managed to resolve twenty five, but there were five still outstanding. I said, now tell me what the first one is. It turned out to be a dispute as to what kind of haircut the seven-year-old son should have. Because father said the son should have what you and I call the crew cut, and the mum said that he should have a much more modest hair. I said, I'm simply not going to decide this. And the reason I wouldn't decide is, by doing this, I'm sending a message to the parents. If you can't feel anything, however trivial, you can come running to this man called the judge, mm-hmm. and the judge will decide, oh, I mean, I'm emasculating you. Deparenting. I'm deparenting you. Yeah. And you must go away. And I said, well, what the hell for? And they said, well, we, we, we can come back. So what needs to happen, you say that first stage is where it's all falling down. And I know um, Mr. Justice Cobb's report mm-hmm. talks about this and talks about the triaging in the first one. What, in your view, needs to happen at that stage? I mean, judges need to be tougher. Do lawyers need to be sanctioned? If Well, I think if one's going to have a sort of triage system, which I've long said is essential, you've got to have a system which has can't be too easily evaded. And if you have an application which simply says, are there allegations of domestic abuse, tick the box, and that's free as possible. People will tick the box. Not least if you tick the box, you get legal aid. So what we need to do is to redesign the forms. And um, at one time, towards the end of my time as president, there was talk about redesigning the forms. And there was a lot of talk at that stage about having um, a system under which you'd be guided off the court process as you were filling up the form. So that uh, every time 
you're all going to be online electronic form, uh, which is a very good idea. And the idea, you get your question. And the question would say, before you answer this, have you thought about this? Are you aware of this? Uh, if not, go here. And you then be directed off by the form electronically to some accessible web-based information service. Um, and the idea was that, um, in a sense, this would be an obstacle course designed to make people think yes. and designed subconsciously. This was the payday of the nudge unit that nudged them away from the thought process. And then the other thing the form needs to do is to say, if you, as it were, tick the domestic abuse box, you've got to give, set up why you say that. And it's like if you tick the urgent box, you've got to explain why. And then the court, if it gets, if despite the obstacle course, you then issue the thing, there needs to be a judicial scrutiny before the first hearing, uh, where a judge looks at this and says, I mean, throws it back and says, you haven't given proper explanation. You haven't given proper reasons for why this is a case involving domestic abuse. And I'm not prepared to go down the, to go down the route to explain that. This isn't urgent. Um, this is not required to our hearing tomorrow morning. This isn't urgent. And then if you as well get past that point and you are on the court process, then you're going to have judges who are much tougher in saying, well, however it is we've got here, um, this case should not be in court, it should go out of court, back into the non-court. Because one of the things that the Family Solution Group report talks about is a protocol for lawyers to demonstrate that there's been a proper exploration of non-court issue resolution before yeah. getting there. Yeah. Is that something you would, you would favour? Absolutely. And one of the problems, this is, this is, again, one of the other pernicious and utterly foreseen, foreseeable and foreseen consequences of Lasper. The immediate consequence of Lasper was the experience of district judges was that the first hearing was taking roughly twice as long as previously. And that only made matters worse in court because instead of listing every 15 minutes, you were given 30 minutes. Why was that? Because, I mean, everybody knew about this and told the government. The government simply said this was a lawyer's conspiracy against the deity. Um, but that was what good solicitors did before they ever got to court. Yeah. They explained these things to the They explained that judges are not magicians, that mm -hmm. some things you want the judge can't give you. The reality of this is going to be this. And all that went with last week. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to bring it back in. But the problem is we're now, I mean, it's easy to sound critical of the judges. One's got, one's got to be realistic. They are coping with unmanageable caseloads. They simply haven't got the luxury of time to do this. And somehow we've got, that's why we've got to get all these cases out of court. I mean, the fact is that personally, if I'm brutally honest about this, the court service, the courts are not providing an adequate service for parents and families, full stop. And people may, may not like to hear me say that, but tough. That's the reality. And we're never going to be able to solve this. And if you either have more resources, which means more and more judges, which only makes matters worse in the long run, or we actually get cases out of court. And what we ought to be doing is identifying that body of cases which needs to be in court and concentrating on them and keeping out of court cases which don't need to be in court. That way, that way we have some chance of having a system which can actually grapple in a timely fashion, in an efficient fashion, in a humane fashion, with those families, those children, those the separating couples who actually do need the assistance of the court. I, I would agree with that completely. And I think as as an outsider of the law, um, you know, uh, looking in, what I see a lot, actually, is that 
There are more consequences for parents who go against a court order. There are no consequences for legal professionals who have a court order and then go away with their client and pick holes in it so that they can appeal and come back. How we learn is is that we make choices and there are consequences of those choices. And so if we don't have something that says if you choose to go against a court order, then this will happen. As I as I see it, and maybe I'm really naive because I, I don't understand it completely, but I haven't yet to meet a parent who has received a consequence of them choosing to go against a court order. And you know, for it has to get for, very bad to get to that stage. But but mm. what is very bad in the life of a child who is not seeing a parent or who mm. is who has been seeing um having having a relationship with both parents and suddenly because one of those adults in that co-parenting relationship does something to annoy the other co-parent mm. who then uses that time with the child as a punishment well they've done this so you they can't you can't see see the child this week but you know, the, there's the, no the, problem, the problem is what kind of consequence are we talking about i mean the traditional old-fashioned consequence is you'll go to jail for contempt of court now there are at least two problems one is that it's actually very difficult proving yeah. contempt i mean if the mother has not taken the child to contact what does mum say? She says, oh, she, I did everything I could to persuade Millie to get contact. She absolutely refused. She was lying on the floor, kicking and screaming. She was beyond my powers to get her to contact. And that's a defence. The other problem is quite different. Let's suppose you get over that. Um, if the mum in a separated household is the residential parent, to use old-fashioned terminology, what's the consequence of putting her in jail? No, I, I I agree, um, but in a way, what is the point of having something if if we choose not to follow it? Where where there is why go in the first place? Why waste everybody's time and do that? And I think we're all in agreement with that. And I think as well, you know, um, it's about helping legal professionals to understand who they're working with, but, who yeah, I mean, is the, walking through the but, door. But there are consequences which one can spell out. Let me give you an example. Towards the end of my time as a judge, I was in the Court of Appeal, presiding on an appeal involving two deeply entrenched parents. And it came pretty close to six one half dozen of the other, and they were deeply entrenched. And I can't remember the years, the case can't remember what the issue was. But we decided, I think, in favour of the mother. And her body language was very interesting. And of course, you can see what's going on if you're a judge up on the bench. And uh, as I said, we went out discussing that. I came back and I said, reasons which we'll give later, we are going to dismiss the appeal. And you could see the mother sort of mouthing, I won. And I picked up on this. And I said, you haven't won. There are no wins in this year. You've both lost. And the fact is, I think it was very blunt. I said, you will, both of you failed your children. And I went and I said to what you've got to think about, uh, you are cultivating in the minds of your children this idea of your former husband as a monster, and they don't see him. The time will come, you probably can't sooner than you expect and hope, when they will see him for whatever reason. And they will then discover that he is not as you have painted him. What are they going to think about you at that point? You need to think about that. 
And I went on, I said, what always haunts me in these cases like this is the thought that when that happens, it may happen next year, it may not happen till they're 19, it may not happen till they're 25. They may decide to have nothing to do with either of you. And I said, you need to think about what it's going to be like in your middle and old age, not knowing whether you're a grandmother or your children have nothing to do with you. And I could tell them, well, nobody ever said this to her. And I think it hit home. And uh, she got very, very, very quiet. I wouldn't say anything more. Just go away and think about it. We came out and the other two judges said, goodness me, James, you were we didn't know this sort of thing went on in the Thank you, Sir James. Well, that story really does illustrate some of the problems that pertain with our current adversarial system and the real need for change within it. That's the end of the first part of this resolution special podcast. Please join us next time where we'll continue to explore these important issues with myself, Sir James and Adele.